hello and welcome to another episode of Views from the Crow's Nest, a podcast by Fisher Jordan. Fisher Jordan is a boutique management consulting firm based in New York, helping top business leaders solve complex problems through strategic insights, novel data analytics techniques, and specialized technology optimizations. If you don't know what a boutique management consultancy is, that just means that we're very small and we're very good at what we do. This podcast is our hub to discuss topics we see at the horizon line of the marketplace, sharing observations from our work in a variety of sectors and covering emerging trends and topics of interest to business leaders and consumers alike on anything from finance, technology, marketing, healthcare, and beyond. That, then, is our view from the crow's nest. After a short break for the month of October, we are back at it with a special double interview with Neet Shah and Dr. Elena Koshkina, two fantastic people with deep expertise in healthcare management and data science. In our conversation, we delve into some interesting things happening at the intersection of data science advancements and the field of population health management. And although you might think those things are uniquely applicable to the COVID-19 pandemic we're still facing at the time of this episode, they also have relevance to life even outside of pandemic conditions. Important stuff, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. So let's get into it. Here's our discussion with Neet Shah and Alana Koshkina on data science in population health management. Welcome to the Crow's Nest. Neet and Elena, thank you for joining me today. Before we get started on the rest of the discussion, why don't you just say a little bit about yourself and your work? Thanks, Nathan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So um, I'm a partner at Fisher Jordan. I've done numerous projects in financial services, but have also spent um, quite a bit of time in healthcare specifically in the field of population health management, mainly um, doing data analytics uh, for one of the large uh, providers in the U.S. All right. Thanks for the intro, Neat. And then, as I mentioned, my other guest today is Dr. Elena Koshkina. Where are you joining us from today, Elena? I'm actually joining you from Spain. I'm in Barcelona area. For the last 15 or so years, I was focused on healthcare analytics. And from a, just a strict academical back background, I have a PhD in biostatistics. And um, it's just a great opportunity to talk about such an important topic. Awesome. Well, great to have you both with us today. We're talking a little bit about data science and population health management. And before we get into that level of specificity, let's just talk a little bit about population health management as a whole first. So. Neat, why don't you start us off and, and just broadly speaking, what is population health management? Sure. So, you know, when one of us needs um, access to healthcare, we go to a healthcare provider. But in addition to this group of entities who we call providers, another big stakeholder is the insurance company or you know, the insurer. Um, if we look at the U.S., um, this could be a private insurer like an Aetna or United Healthcare, or it could be the government uh, providing insurance via Medicare or Medicaid. And then if you look at some of the other countries, for example, the UK, it's a little bit of a different setup. So in some ways, both the provider and the insurer is, um, is the government. But either way, you know, whether it's the US or the UK or other countries, there is this possibility of supplementing the provider with what we call population health management services. And these services are sometimes run by the insurer themselves, or they can be run by a standalone population health management company. Either way, uh, the objective of these programs is to improve clinical outcomes, to help 
uh, people stay healthy and to reduce the overall cost of healthcare. Ideally, uh, these services should span the entire spectrum of healthcare. So we'll start with what uh, is commonly called disease management or condition management. These uh, programs are targeted at folks that already have one or more conditions. This includes chronic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, asthma, COPD, and even a few others. The second area that population health management focuses on is uh, is called case management. And these programs are targeted at a much narrower sliver of the population, people who have more complex, high-risk situations. So cancer, uh, heart failure, advanced uh, kidney disease, often multiple diseases at the same time. And they require a lot of assistance in just navigating the system and ensuring that, um, you know, they're able to manage this very expensive and complex situation. So those are the two common, you know, two big common areas. Then we have women's health and maternity helps uh, navigate pregnancy, childbirth, and also taking care of the newborn after the delivery. Another broad category um, within population health management is wellness, aimed at helping healthy people stay healthy, right? So they may have risk factors, but they haven't developed into a full-blown chronic condition yet, right? So the idea is to help these individuals maintain a healthy lifestyle so that they don't develop any of these conditions. Another area which is big, especially right now during the COVID time, is mental and emotional well-being, helping people manage stress, uh, particularly at times like this. So I would say these are the five big areas. There may be a couple of other smaller areas like end-of-life care, um, where population health managers also focus, but hopefully this gives you a flavor. Got it, and I agree that's a good overview of the of the field, so thank you for that. So this next question goes to Elena then. Neat gave us that summary of population health management in general, mentioned the U.S. and the U.K. I know Spain isn't the U.K., but it is still a part of European countries, so how would you say that the approach to population health management differs in a place like Spain and Europe generally as opposed to the U.S.? Probably let's talk about similarities uh, because everyone would like to decrease the increasing trend of chronic conditions, encourage healthy lifestyle, and improve mental well-being. Why there are differences, and these differences explained if you look at the healthcare system in United States and in the rest of the, at least European countries. In United States, healthcare is not universal, and it's uh, covered by mostly by private insurance. And cost of uh, medical care in United States is skyrocketing for the last few decades. Increasing medical costs were a huge problem for United States healthcare, and that's why a lot of programs were implemented as a starting point of a reduction of the medical cost. As a result, uh, population health management has evolved, and obviously it, it made a huge step from just managing medical costs. It uh, evolved into population health management. A uh, very sophisticated IT infrastructure was developed to do data-driven population management. So this is a, a state of a population health management in the United States, extremely sophisticated from an IT infrastructure. 
and the knowledge standpoint. Increasing medical cost was not such an issue for European healthcare for quite a long time. And this is why overall population health management not as developed in uh, European countries. At the same time, even in UK and the rest of Europe, the importance of population health management is very well understood. And a lot of new infrastructure is being developed just to accomplish goals of a population health management and wellness. Of course, uh, there are clinical uh, differences and the lifestyle risks um, in the population. Uh, for example, heart disease, hypertension, obesity is uh, traditional problems for United States population, while smoking tends to be a higher burden for European countries. And not to be overlooked is the cost of insurance. The cost of buying private insurance in the United States is at the average is four times higher comparing with how much private insurance costs in, in Europe. And this makes situation of a, a continuous population health management is very different. In the United States, private insurance is usually bought by employer. And if individual is losing his job or changing his job, most likely his or her coverage will be changing as well. So this continuity of um, population health management benefits are going to be terminated. And this continuity, which is essential for uh, population health management to be successful is going to be lost if individual in the United States is losing or changing its job. In Europe, uh, to buy private insurance is relatively inexpensive. And actually I can witness this uh, by buying a health insurance in Spain, it's very reasonable. And if you buy private insurance in Europe, you're also enjoying the benefits of the population health management. In a situation, if you're losing your job or changing your job, you don't have to change your private insurance. And in this situation, you actually have a continuity in your population health management benefit, regardless of your employment status. Unfortunately, uh, private insurance coverage in, uh, for example, in UK is only 13%. So you may have a uh, continuous exposure to population health management in Europe, but uh, population with this uh, population health management benefits is relatively low comparing with population in the United States. Well, between the two of those answers, I think that's a really good background overall. Um, so neat. Why would you say population health management is important at all? So I'll talk about it in terms of um, how it benefits two groups. So one is the employee or the member or in the individual, right? For the employee, um, the main benefit, in my opinion, is it gives you access to a trusted advisor. This could be a coach or a nurse, someone who you can turn to when you have questions about any healthcare decision you have. In addition to answering your questions, they're also um, there to give you a nudge in the right direction to make sure you're following through on what you should be doing, right? So making sure you get your tests done regularly, making sure you fill your prescriptions, making sure you stay active, all these things you need to minimize the risk of uh, developing any further diseases. 
Another thing that um, I've seen, you know, nowadays, as we all know, is that there's there's a ton of medical information available on the internet, and it's very confusing, um, very overwhelming, and often very contradictory, right? So rather than going to the internet, it's very helpful to be able to go to your coach or a nurse um, who can sift through all this noise and give you very straightforward, simple guidelines to follow, right? So that's from the perspective of the individual. And then if we look at it from the perspective of the payer, right? And by payer, I mean, you know, in the US, it would be in most cases, your employer who's paying for your insurance, or it could be the government. To the payer, it, it helps, um, one, keep your employees healthy, which means uh, more productivity, uh, reduced absenteeism, right? So these are huge impacts. But even more directly, there's actually a very direct impact on reducing healthcare costs. So we spoke briefly about chronic conditions earlier. So the combination of chronic conditions and mental health conditions account for 90% of total healthcare spending. And population health management programs like wellness, disease management, case management have been proven to reduce these costs. So when you reduce the cost of healthcare, it means um, lower premium payments, and then that ultimately trickles down uh, to the bottom line. Thanks, Neat. So next question is for Elena again. Uh, who are some leaders in population health management, and what kind of innovations are we seeing to drive better outcomes? I would like to give examples from two different spaces of a population health management. First is within the wellness space. CVS Health just launched a health application with Apple, and the name of this application is Attain. For everyone who has an Apple Watch provided by CVS Health, they are able to download this health application. And this application brings them a very cool digital health experience. It combines members' health history with uh, everyday activity. And based on a combination of this uh, medical history and activity, this application creates you very good and actionable information about your personalized goals, about goals to improve your lifestyle. Also, it may send you a reminder about uh, preventive care, uh, making sure you're refilling your medication. And all this work is also having some rewards. So if you are using your application, if you are compliant with your medication refill, if you are keeping yourself active, you're actually going to be getting some nice rewards from retailers or from a restaurant. So a choice is yours as long as you keep up your activity goals. And the second example was just announced by CVS Health. It's actually coming from area of a case management, a special identification algorithm using Modern advances in the machine learning uh, was created for people with uh, chronic kidney disease. And traditionally, there are various tools to identify these members, but it was common understanding that these tools are lacking some precisions and some sensitivities around identification of the members with CKD. So machine learning model was applied and it actually created significant increase in member identification for CKD program. It also identified members who are at risk for 
dialysis and um, these members were identified timely and they had a great program with a case manager actually to make this um, procedure much more uh, streamlining for them because dialysis is a very compli uh, complex healthcare experience. So this was definitely a great example of using machine learning uh, to support case management in such a complicated case like a kidney care. Vitality Health Healthcare Insurance is a private insurance in UK. And when I looked at the rewards which are provided by uh, Vitality Healthcare Insurance, these rewards are very comprehensive, especially in the wellness space. They're also providing um, a lot of rewards for having an active lifestyle, for doing appropriate uh, healthcare screening for refilling your medication. So it seems to me uh, definitely UK market is trying to catch up with what is happening uh, on United States markets in terms of uh, wellness. So let's just keep going and talk about the population health management process. Like how does this process work? Yes, that's a very complex process, but the very first and a very important step in this process is data collection and data integration. We know about population or individual as much as data is telling us. So accurate data, data with a great integrity is a fundamental piece of a successful population health management. After data is collected, then the actually clinical algorithm could be applied to identify a population with chronic conditions or population with the risk factors. So this would be the second step. The third step, which is also extremely important, is stratification of population for the health management of wellness into risk groups or levels of severity. This step is important because uh, this stratification of a population is very important to prioritize population for the engagement. And engagement and the care delivery is actually uh, next and the fourth step of a health management process. So engagement and the care delivery, what this process assumes is how members are going to be outreached by the program. If this outreach is going to be just uh, uh, using uh, digital tools, if it's going to be a traditional form of just sending some letters or educational information, or actually health coach is going to be outreaching member if member has a, a high needs for outreach uh, from a, a healthcare professional. And the uh, health program or wellness initiative are not going to be completed without precise uh, outcome and ev evaluation effort. And within this outcome and evaluation, uh, there is actually quantitative measurement, how successful program was, how successful outreach was, and it also helps to identify potential gaps and the barriers within the program. So this process is not a static process, is a continuous test and learn process and information from outcomes and evaluation is helping to shape uh, population health management programs and the wellness initiatives. 
So one would imagine that data collection is probably the most important phase in healthcare delivery. Like I would imagine it's probably only going to increase from where it already is. But could you discuss the key sources of data that you've seen being used in uh, pop health management? Absolutely, absolutely. And going back to almost 20 years ago when I have started what is called traditional data sources where applied to do population health management. And within these traditional data sources, definitely the first data source was a medical claim data. And this medical claim data contains a lot of information about patient procedure, what has been done, what kind of diagnosis patient had. And it also has a lot of financial information because traditionally uh, medical claim data was collected just to pay uh, medical bills. Also pharmacy data and information about prescription and prescription refill is probably one of the source of a traditional data as well as lab data and information about testing. Electronic medical records data, I would not call it very traditional, but it definitely has been used for the last 10 years. And this electronic medical record data is data which is very rich about patient medical history because it's coming directly to the health insurance companies from a provider. The problem with the traditional data sources, uh, first, it actually takes a lot of time and the IT efforts to integrate all these data sources and to make it available for population health management. And there is a, always a significant time lag, meaning how long it takes between when data is collected until when data actually could be used for population outreach. And usually this time lag is about three months, and this is definitely a significant time lag because it prevents a program being proactive and it definitely negatively impacts outcomes. Another data source is a health risk assessment. And this data probably actively started to be collected about 10 years ago when population health management did uh, some evolution and it became apparent that in addition to traditional data sources, what would be extremely helpful for population management is to understand individual uh, member active uh, lifestyle trends or uh, member biometrics such as height and weight also stress level, some uh, family history with diseases. So all this information was extremely helpful, but how this information was collected about individuals was a very, very convoluted process, I would say, because usually a member will be presented with a survey of over 50 questions, and expectation was to fill out all these questions. It was a time-consuming process. It was not uh, very welcomed by members, and also this uh, survey was usually completed once a year, and it was just a very static snapshot of a member health assessment, and also completion rate for the health risk assessment traditionally was extremely low, and at the average, it was around 15%, but it was a good tiny step forward. So now we can talk about what is making modern population health management exciting. And definitely the excitement is coming from ability to 
track information within wearable devices. And within wearable devices, members can actually, on a daily basis, track the activity about how much they're exercising. Uh, they can do different type of games to evaluate the stress level. Uh, they can uh, also track information about the biometrics, about sugar level, about sleep habits. So it's extremely rich set of uh, biometric information and health information and lifestyle information, but also all the data points could be tracked almost on a daily basis. And uh, if you are connecting your wearable device to health application, for example, health application like Attain, which we've mentioned previously, then your wearable device is going to be two-way communication about your health. Not only your information is being tracked, uh, you're also getting some important messages about maybe creating some achievable goals to improve your lifestyle, maybe to remind it about uh, filling up your medication uh, to do preventative test screening. So this is definitely going to be your uh, two-way communication about your health. And this two-way communication with help of a wearable device could be um, helping you almost on a daily basis. So we we heard a little bit about uh, incentives and how those can become pretty expensive in the data collection process, but is, is there a way to be smarter and more targeted with incentives? Yes. So in general, incentives have been used um, in multiple steps um, within this process. You know, Elena mentioned earlier that, you know, to get a health risk assessment form filled, sometimes you, know, you have to fill 50 questions, right? It could take quite a long time um, in the middle of your workday. We also want to encourage regular contact uh, with nurses or coaches. Uh, we want to encourage uh, certain healthy behaviors, right? So, so, so insurers and um, population health companies, they do use incentives um, to drive these behaviors. Um, but we've seen that it's not always used in a very smart way. A few years ago, we saw a case where a large plan sponsor, so an employer, was spending $100 million over a three-year period just to incentivize the completion of health risk assessment forms. So when you're spending that kind of money, um, you need to answer a few important questions um, and then design the incentive program accordingly. Um, you know, so what is the right level of incentive are we incentivizing the right people? Whatever behavior change we're trying to drive, is that going to be sustainable? Are the people gaming the incentives? And you know, most importantly, are there alternative ways to spend this money to eventually drive better outcomes at a potentially a lower cost, right? So let's let's take an example, right? So let's say you're one of you know these program designers. You're thinking, okay, how much money should I spend on an incentive? Should it be hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, right? We've seen easily that um, the engagement rates can often double when the incentives double, right? So in the case of a $200 incentive, you may have double the engagement. And also the value of our incentive itself is twice what it used to be, right? So you're talking about totally four times the cost relative to a $100 incentive, right? So are you getting a commensurate benefit for this increased cost? Uh, when we looked at this, um, we saw pretty clearly that the answer was no. 
we ran a study where we saw very clearly that increasing the level of the incentive beyond $75 is pretty much a loss-making proposition. In fact, what was happening was that people were just participating in the program to get that money. And then once they completed that health risk assessment form, they did not engage with uh, the rest of the process at all. So hugely loss-making proposition. So in fact, in such a situation, if you do have such a large budget to spend, it's much more effective to actually split it across the entire continuum of care. So you, know, you might wanna spend a little bit on the data collection with regard to health risk assessment, maybe a little bit on incentivizing people to engage with a nurse or a coach, and then also spend some on incentivizing long-term sustained behavior. That's, you're gonna get a much better ROI in that case. So when we're talking about identification and stratification, where does data science fit into that step? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Elena touched upon this um, a little bit earlier and it's essentially identifying the key risk factors and diseases that an individual has, right? So, you know, let's take an example. You know, one of the biggest healthcare problems we have right now is diabetes. The CDC estimates that more than 13% of the U.S. adult population, or roughly 34 million people, have diabetes. But the really interesting and scary part is that more than 7 million of these uh, diabetics don't even know that they have it. So we're talking about 20% of the population where it's completely undiagnosed. Without diagnosis, obviously, there's not going to be much action or much treatment, right? So population health management providers can really help with this. And what they do is they ingest data from the multiple sources, like, uh, you know, that Elena mentioned, the claims data, EMR, and, you know, the more innovative uh, wearables and so on. And they use that data to run uh, a rules-based engine that helps identify what conditions you already have. And perhaps just as importantly, what conditions the individual is at risk for developing in the future. And this timely knowledge of these risk factors and existing conditions then becomes the foundation for developing the care plan going forward. So when we talk about predicting uh, what diseases a person is at risk of developing going forward, this is where data science plays a big role. We use predictive modeling to determine amongst the population, for example, who is most likely to become a diabetic, right? And, you know, you, you know, we said earlier that, you know, 34 million people have diabetes. But in addition to that, in the U.S., there are another almost 90 million or one in three, you know, one in three adults are pre-diabetic, right? Now, how do you reach out to 90 million people, right, and, and deliver effective messaging, effective coaching to this group? It's, it's quite difficult, right? But on the flip side, you want to make sure that they don't progress to full-blown diabetes, because once that happens, uh, the costs go up significantly. So the average medical cost for a diabetic is 2.3 times higher than for a person who doesn't have diabetes, right? And when you take this and multiply it across the population of the country, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars in increased healthcare expenses. Um, and that's not even counting the lost productivity, the absenteeism, the impact on your family, the impact on mental health. So there's a big benefit to preventing this disease progression, right? 
And the good news is that it's actually quite easy to do this through relatively simple lifestyle changes, but it really helps to have a coach, right? You need the coach to, you know, egg you on, guide you in the right direction, make sure you're taking, um, you know, the right steps as far as exercise and food is concerned, as far as medication is concerned, right? So it's super helpful to have that wellness coach. But just looking at the number of people who ha need, need this, right, it becomes very hard to actually provide that service to everybody, right? So what you need to do then is identify amongst this population of pre-diabetics who needs it the most. And this is particularly where predictive modeling can be very um, helpful in identifying the highest risk individuals. In fact, uh, working collaboratively with Elena, we, we developed uh, a model that identified a small cohort of pre-diabetics that had more than double the average risk of disease progression compared to the rest of the population. And then, you know, when you get down to that small cohort, it then becomes possible to give them that very high touch coaching that uh, becomes very impactful, right? Um, so yeah, there are some, you know, applications of data science, both in terms of the identification, which we spoke about, you know, identifying who has what risk factor, and then also trying to predict who is likely to uh, progress beyond where they're currently at, right? Um, and I use diabetes and pre-diabetes as an example, but really this process you could use for other situations like um, pre-hypertension to hypertension or um, osteopenia to osteoarthritis. You know, there are numerous applications for this. So obviously, whenever we talk about data collection, there's this undercurrent of privacy concerns that we have to address. And of course, in healthcare spaces, that shows up even more around HIPAA. Um, so Elena, could you tell us a little bit more about some of the HIPAA concerns in this healthcare data collection space? Yes, and this definitely is very sensitive question, and it's a huge issue. Medical records include very intimate details about personal life. They have information about physical health, mental health. Right now, they're also adding information about social behavior, sometimes about personal relationship and even financial status. People definitely don't want to disclose this information because it's personal. And on some occasions, uh, exposure of this information could lead to very harmful events, such as a discrimination for the employment. Uh, it could even lead to discrimination uh, to obtain health insurance. And this has been a huge and known problem for years. But nevertheless, breaches uh, continue to be a huge issue for the medical data. For example, just in 2019, over 41 million of medical records were breached. Obviously, it's a huge issue, and the um, solution is being looked and, uh, by healthcare companies and by providers. And probably the most um, interesting and the modern approach to prevent healthcare data breaches could be solution of a blockchain. This potentially could be extremely powerful solution, and it has several uh, important potential benefits. Obviously, the first one is could facilitate more secure data storage. And at the same time, um, this more secure data storage could be facilitating 
data sharing across uh, healthcare sectors because with the blockchain solution, ownership of the data is going to be changed from a health insurance companies or providers. They're actually going to be shifted to individual members. And this potentially may change to the huge, huge different way of thinking about who owns the data and who is um, responsible for data storage. But overall, uh, this solution would uh, protect uh, security of uh, medical data storage and it will prevent a lot of breaches. For example, in 2019, actually CVS Health announced in collaboration with IBM the first experimental data fabric, which is going to be processing data using a blockchain methodology. And this is just experimental procedure, but it's great to see that such a huge healthcare players, uh, such as CVS Health, they are looking into this experimental work. And um, with these experimental steps, it's also very important to keep in mind that change in the data storage technology, in the data processing technology, it's going to be titanic collaboration across healthcare players, government officials, technology innovators, because this is a very complex process and only collaboration across this organization and the leadership will make this potential new technology happening for the healthcare data protection. Nice, and that's a really important footnote on this whole discussion. So let's talk a little bit about engagement and care delivery. In a time when anyone can look up their symptoms online or consult the array of quasi-medical advice available, how, how do you drive engagement in that kind of environment? This is a very good question because the best program is not going to have impact if members are not engaged. In a very simple terms, no engagement, no impact. Just to give you an example, incentive design and member engagement is becoming almost a science, so just a conversational topic or something what would be learned periodically. A University of Pennsylvania actually has entire department, which is called a Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics. Uh, they call themselves Nudging Towards a Better Health. And this entire department in the University of Pennsylvania, they are looking at the different ways in design, how to engage individuals, how to make incentives so individuals are going to be engaged and they are going to be sustaining this positive behavior to achieve ultimate goals of a healthy life and a happier life. And obviously, during my work and also we did some work with the NEED, you spend a lot of time to understand and to quantify what is working and what is not working because uh, there is a different ways to engage members. There could be traditional channels of just sending uh, mail reminders, emails, phone, workshop, group coaching, social challenges. So what is working the best? And it's very different um, to answer because there is not one answer. Every situation is actually unique and it depends upon member needs. It depends upon 
what will be working the best for this in, uh, particular individual. Just to sum it up, for incentives to be working, they should be at the right place, meaning the appropriate uh, engagement channel, at the right time for the member. So if member is uh, having some kind of a life event, health life event, engagement should be happening at the time of this life event, not before or not after. So for example, simple question, how much engagement is required? Do we actually need to outreach member on a daily basis? Uh, should it be um, done uh, periodically? And I don't think there is a, a lot of convincing data about this, but for example, in one of the studies which was done for um, coaching for members with diabetes, overall results clearly demonstrated that at least two sessions are required for members to be engaged and actually to, not just to, to engage, but actually to follow uh, conversations and follow lifestyle changes designed by diabetes management program. At the same time, we did not see any additional benefits if a member was increasing communication with an online coach beyond five sessions. So what is this balance between how much is needed and uh, what is going to be successful? And this question is definitely becoming a science for a lot of healthcare uh, professionals. What was a quite an interesting trend in the um, recent time, and it also was with advances of wearable devices, is uh, gamification of um, engagement in the healthcare activities. Almost anecdotal example that uh, Pokemon Go players, just because they were playing these games, increased the steps by almost 25%. Maybe it's not the best game, but it definitely helped uh, to improve the uh, physical activity. This approach is actually also has been studied intensively uh, also across the United States. And I also saw like a very comprehensive uh, site, uh, European site. It was uh, called uh, Games for Health. So this is all thinking about how to engage members with um, appropriate health actions and how to sustain members to keep doing these uh, health actions to improve their lives. Also, there is a study that gamification could be probably the most uh, successful if it creates meaningful social connection and uh, if this gamification approach is connecting members of the same uh, family or the same social circle, but definitely this conversation to be continued and it will be interesting to see uh, how this uh, gamification approach will be developing and evolving within the next year or couple of years. I like that connection with, uh, with, with gamification and talking about some of these sort of intangible benefits that, that are kind of arising from this space. But let's, let's just kind of push into that a little bit further. Does population health management deliver even more measurable outcomes? What would you say to that? And this is a very practical and very appropriate conversation at this point, Nathan, because everything that's being done in terms of population health management, uh, we're still talking about business and we need to be producing some very measurable outcomes of a program success. And usually, traditionally, for many years, for many decades, 
uh, the only success of a health management program, or not, I shouldn't say only success, but the biggest part of a health population management success was measured in terms of a saving money. And yes, uh, when we're looking into disease management programs and the case management programs, usually these programs producing a significant reduction in medical cost, and usually this reduction could be seen anywhere between 2 and 3% of the total medical cost. And how this reduction in the medical cost achieved is achieved by reduction in inpatient utilization, uh, reduction in uh, readmissions, and as well as promoting uh, pharmacy compliance for the members within disease management or case management programs. So this is accepted status for the case management and disease management program. So definitely all these activities will be leading to substantial medical cost reduction. Wellness space is not going to lead to immediate cost saving. And this has been very problematic to show value of the wellness programs because if it doesn't produce a medical cost saving, it may create a question, is it really something where we would like to invest. Fortunately, the common thinking right now and a common agreement and consensus that uh, wellness investment is an investment in the future. It's an investment in a healthy and a happier life. And definitely it will bring medical cost saving, but this medical cost saving is not going to be observed immediately and immediately I'm talking about within the next 12 months. Probably medical cost saving from wellness initiatives are going to be observed within two to three, maybe five years. But there should be different set of outcome metrics for the wellness space. And usually these outcome metrics are measured in clinical terms. So, for example, wellness programs already showing uh, consistent improvement in the weight loss. It's about uh, 7% of the weight loss for the members who are participating in the wealth initiatives, which are targeting weight management, as well as better management of uh, diabetes, HB1C level, as well as uh, members with depression and anxiety. They're also showing much better management if they are part of a wellness initiative. So wellness is not going to be showing immediate medical cost saving, but definitely there should be clinical metrics to support the importance of wellness initiatives. Got it. So it sounds like wellness is still definitely an area to invest in as long as you understand that the ROI might be drawn out over something more like a three to five year period instead of a near term 12 month period. Is that Does that accurately capture what you're saying there? Yep, exactly. It doesn't have an immediate ROI and immediate, I'm saying, within the next 12 months. They're not going to be producing immediate cost saving, and immediate cost saving, it's a cost saving within next 12 months, but materializing in medical cost saving uh, within uh, three to five years because investment in the wellness space is an investment in more active lifestyle, in a better condition management, and all the steps are going to be reflected in the reduction of a medical cost. So I know a sore spot in the healthcare world is the topic of unnecessary care, otherwise known as low-value care. 
um, and the expenses that come along with that. So does population health management have a role in preventing this at all? Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, let me just give a little bit of background. So, you know, there are some procedures that uh, relative to the risk and the cost, um, they don't always give you um, the equivalent benefits, right? Um, one area where this occasionally happens, and I have to emphasize the word occasionally, um, is joint replacement surgery. So we talk about knee replacements or hip replacements, right? In most situations, joint replacement greatly improves the quality of life for the person who, you know, who goes through the surgery. Um, but on the flip side, there is risk of post-surgical complications and the surgeries can be very expensive, uh, costing tens of thousands of dollars. And in some situations, there's very clear clinical guidelines which say that for some folks, rather than going in for surgery, they would be much better off with conservative treatments like uh, physical therapy or just prescription medication. These methods are safer and of course, there's reduced risk of uh, the post-surgical complications. But even then, from within this group of people um, where conservative treatment would be better, um, there are studies that have shown that still 20% of this group still end up having surgery, right? So these are like completely unnecessary surgeries, essentially. To prevent this, you need to educate patients. And they need to know before they go visit their surgeon, what sort of questions they need to ask so that they can make an informed decision about whether they really need to go in for the surgery or not. And uh, this is where population health management programs uh, with their counselors can come in and help. Um, but even there, um, you know, and I touched upon this briefly when we spoke about identification and stratification, you need to be able to predict who it is that is likely to go in for joint replacement in the future, right? So again, um, data science, can help um, the population health management companies identify who these likely candidates are for joint replacement and then offer the counseling um, if they would like that. Yeah, it seems like a really valuable application of, of data science in, in population health management. Um, so I'm glad to know that there, there are places where that, that can fit in. And finally, it's, it's pretty much impossible to talk about population health and not at least acknowledge COVID. So in the middle of a pandemic here, has COVID had any impact on this space or has it been mostly untouched? No, absolutely. Pandemic has a huge impact on every space and especially on the healthcare. And probably the biggest impact of COVID so far, it's a super fast boost of telemedicine. Uh, the needs of the social distancing is very important. And as a result, telehealth has exponential increase. For example, we have a lot of studies, but I saw those numbers were astonishing how quickly telemedicine is being changed in terms of how many people are using it right now, because prior to pandemic, I know there was a fair amount of skepticism for members to use telemedicine, but right after pandemic, for example, it was a study in the Journal of the American Informatics Association, the urgent care visits in one of the New York health system grew by 683%. And for non-urgent virtual care visits, 
telemedicine was increased by over 4,000%. It's difficult to believe in this like, super boost for the telemedicine. This is how pandemic changed the perception of the importance and reliability of the telemedicine. And this uh, situation is observed across all the countries. A great example of a different company, it's a platform in India called Prakta. They also claiming the teleconsultation were increasing by 100% every week. In addition, uh, software companies which are supporting healthcare, they also being very creative in terms of eliminating unnecessary interaction between uh, patients and providers. And I came across a great example. It's a software company called Pregier. This software company created a software, what it's called Zero Contact. And how the software is designed, it helps completely eliminate contact during intake process between um, patient and the provider. So all information about patient could be uh, completed, signed up, and downloaded without any interaction in the doctor office. And all this information could be processed as a doctor office, also without uh, seeing patient. And uh, this application had a great success. And more importantly, it was eliminating unnecessary exposure and making this intake process much safer for both patients and providers. I'm sure we are going to see great examples of uh, how uh, technology is helping to deal with pandemic. And this is why it is great to be a part of a, uh, the process. And it's great to just to follow what's happening uh, in advances of modern healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that probably still remains to be seen, particularly on that topic, like you said. And um, absolutely, the fact that we can see some of what's going on now is is fantastic. Well, thank you to both of you for joining me today and bringing your prodigious expertise in this field to uh, a really wide-reaching and, and interesting conversation. And uh, dialing in from all over the world here, uh, it's really great to have you guys joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Well, that about does it for our latest episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. You can find out more about Fisher Jordan and our work helping clients exchange complexity for clarity at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. Thanks again for listening here on Views from the Crow's Nest. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you shared it with a friend or colleague writing a review or leaving a rating on whichever podcast app you use also helps this podcast become more discoverable to new listeners. As a reminder, you can always find and subscribe to Views from the Crow's Nest on all major streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. And of course, you can always access it directly via podcast.fisherjordan.com. Finally, if you have any comments or questions on today's episode, or even if you have a suggested topic for our next view from the crow's nest, feel free to send us an email, engage at fisherjordan.com, and we will see you from the crow's nest.